Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast and episode 52. We are the show that shares inspiring stories, unusual journeys and insights from people who have faced adversity as they head through life. This week we've got a wonderful story to share with you as we speak to Anne-Marie Monk. A former athlete and coach, Anne-Marie's life has revolved around sport. Growing up in Hong Kong and heading to the Olympics as a 14-year-old catapulted her into a life of sport. We explore everything from her athlete experiences to her lessons drawn from the different cultures she's been immersed in over the years. We touch on some of the lifestyle challenges of coaching and how the sector seems to be undergoing a bit of a shift towards a more professionalised nature. Just before we dive in, please make sure once you've listened to today's episode, you click subscribe. And if you can send on today's episode to one person you think would benefit from hearing it, that would be awesome. So let's get into episode 52. Anne-Marie Monk, a life in sport and the lessons learned as an athlete and coach. Hello and welcome to the show, Anne-Marie. How are you doing? I'm really good. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me to yeah, come well, on your show. For, well, you introduced yourself to me, what was a whole, over a year ago now, believe it or not, how uh, how much time have we seemed to have lost in the swimming world and the sports world. But uh, yeah, just give obviously our listeners and our viewers a little introduction as to kind of who you are and, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so I am Anne-Marie and I uh, am from Hong Kong. I was born and uh, raised there and swam there for a long time um, under Dave Haller for, for the vast majority of my career. And then later on, Bill Sweetnam, which was, you know, a fun, fruitful experience with, with him during his, what I would call, painful phase, painful season <laughs> of like animal swims and whatnot. Um, so I swam up until about 22, 23. I retired just uh, before the 96 Olympics. I unfortunately didn't make it into, into that games. I was uh, actually training over here in Cardiff with Dave and um, just had a terrible illness. Um, it just hit me at the wrong time and I just couldn't bounce back from it and you know it was just un super unfortunate it's the thing that we try and stay away from at all athletes right is to either injury or illness and unfortunately it hit me um, and so since then I um, kind of have always been stuck with sport it's just always been something I've been really passionate about so I got into coaching uh, not straight away a little bit later um, and I started working um, with you know, just kids, just teaching kids how to swim and sort of learn to swim programs. It was just like a little thing I could do on the side. And then I, I got quite serious about it. Started, uh, was the sort of head age group coach for um, a swim team out in Hong Kong. And then, um, you know, things changed and I got married and suddenly kids were on the way and I didn't want to devote so much time to mornings and after schools and weekends to doing that. So I um, moved over to the triathlete world. Uh, they, a lot of them were bugging me to help them. And I started coaching triathletes, uh, triathletes uh, in about 2003, 2004. And that was just really good fun. And so I still do that. It's been a, a long journey with them. I still have access to um, some age group swimmers 
as well. Um, but I moved to London in 2017 and um, got burnt out in 2018. And I have not been coaching since then. So I have been on more of a existential journey since. And the lockdown has kind of helped in that in that period, because I've just been able to kind of go off on my own little learning journeys and figure out new things and new ways of doing stuff that I'm interested in. So that's me. Well, we're going to explore, I guess, lots of different aspects of that, but I'm curious as to where it all started. Uh, what was it like kind of growing up and how did that journey into swimming, you know, how did it even start and what did it kind of look like in those first few years that you can remember? Yeah. So, I mean, Hong Kong is a small Island. Um, so everyone learned how to swim, just everyone. And um, I was part of um, a, a country club and everyone at the country club swam. It was a tiny little team, but we, that was my, my first entry to it. I was absolutely terrified. Um, you know, the, the, the guy that ran the, t- the team was called the captain. He's an ex army captain. Um, and, you know, was, was scary, <laughs> but our tiny little team, just our country club team produced five Olympians. Um, so, you know, I, th- he did something right. I don't know. It was just a lot of fun. It was, it was a, a lot of fun and it just became a very normal part of my sort of, you know, youth, just, you know, after school, I'd go to the club, meet all my friends there. We, you know, down a bowl of fries like nutrition wasn't a thing back then, right? Or a big bowl of ramen and then jump in, swim for an hour. And then those of us that were pretty good would then go on to extra training and we'd dive in the captain's car and he'd take us to the extra training. And that just kind of, just kind of became a thing. Um, so that's kind of how it started. It just, everyone was swimming. So it was like a, a normal thing to do and a great way to meet so many other people that weren't in your school Cause it, it, you know, we had the one big swim team. So it was like, everyone was there from every school. So it was really good fun. And I know when we, when we caught up a few weeks back, you were talking about some of the early travel experiences that perhaps being in that part of the world, being such a travel hub and the nature of swimming where you travel to competitions actually kind of probably opened your eyes to some opportunities that perhaps in other parts of the world, you may not have seen that that early in your sporting journey. Yeah, I mean, I started swimming a little bit late. So, uh, you know, probably I was in the shallow end, you know, dipping my toe when I was about seven. And, you know, I then joined the swim team and kind of really got thrown at the deep end. Um, And I was, you know, just just coming into uh, being eight years old. And our swim team every year, we went to the Philippines and we'd go in November and literally a Friday morning we'd show up at the airport on mass to be like 300 of us in the same t-shirt and we'd fly to the philippines to manila and do a two-day invitational over there and it was just the most fun and then we returned the favor in um in may and you know we had this again this invitational that all these different swim teams from all around asia would come to and again it was just the most fun. And, you know, I still have good relationships with some of the kids that I met on that. Um, you know, Kiko Thompson, who's a swam in three Olympics was a, went to Cal and she is the, the president of the Philippine Olympic association. You know, we, we met at those meets and, 
and we, you know, we were, we, we were at the Olympics together and, you know, it was really sort of fun, fun experiences. Um, and then we had some smaller meets where we like the, my biggest eye-opening experience was when we went to Japan. So the first time, I think I must've been nine or 10 small team, only about 16 of us. It was a select team of, I don't, I don't know what, I just know there was, it was small, a small team and no parents were allowed. And we went and swam, trained at the Tokyo swimming center and swam in these crazy meets. We were there for probably, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks. Um, and it was just the Japanese machine is so like efficient and big. And I think it was more the efficiency that really got to me. But, you know, coming from Hong Kong, we'd have like three or four heats of anything. And then you go to Japan and there's like 60 heats of, of every event, but they did it at such pace um, and such rapidity. And then just seeing these really fast kids you know, kind of really opened up your world. So I, I just sat there going, wow, they're really fast. They're the same age as me, but they're really fast. And, you know, I kind of was really Im impressed by that. Um, and, you know, they spoke no English. We obviously spoke no Japanese, but it was just a really fun experience. And I think that kind of got me, I guess, subconsciously thinking, wow, there's, there's more to this. And then the 84 Olympics rolled around and I, so, you know, it was, that was um, what, you know, LA time. And so it was on our TVs at like six in the morning and I was up every morning watching all the swimming. I literally watched all of it. I was so into all of it, like obviously all the swimming. I was also doing gymnastics at the time. So I was into all the gymnastics we, you couldn't get away from the track. So we watched all the track. I was watching the diving, the volleyball, like, you know, so I was just enthralled with all of it. Like Rowdy Gaines, Matt Biondi, Mary T, you know, Sippy, who actually ended up being a coach of mine when I went to USC, Tracy Calkins. And then there was a the whole Johnny Sieben thing. And then you had Carl Lewis and you had Mary Lou Retton. And you just had all these, like, you know, I was just like, wow, I really want to do that. Like I had such, I was just enthralled with it. Right. So I think Japan kind of turned me around to that and just seeing a really different side of Asia, but also just seeing these fast kids and being exposed to them and then having the Olympics and just being like totally wowed by it. And this is sort of where the best go. And that was, that kind of, I guess, turned a switch on in me. So, yeah. So what happened next? Because obviously I'm sure if you'd have said, you know, that'll be you soon, you would have probably gone, you know, almost it felt like a world away. So at what point after, you know, having those early experiences in Japan, watching those games, did that, you said it was like almost the end and like a light switch going, but was there a point that you can remember where the dream, if you like, actually became, oh, we're actually getting quite close to this potentially becoming a reality or did, was it all just you were in a complete cloud as you moved through it all? Yeah, I think it was more a cloud. I think I was really aware of the fact that I was, you know, in Hong Kong, I was good. And, but I loved racing. Like I love to race, right? And the training was just like an opportunity for me to see all my friends. So like a lot of my best friends um, came from, from my program, less so from school, et cetera. 
Um, and then, you know, we had, we always had invitational meets, which, which I'll touch on a little later because it's something I noticed it isn't so big here. Um, so we were racing the Chinese forever, put it that way, right? And they were like, when they came over to our little meets, they were, um, you know, not, not out of dis touch with us, right? I mean, there were one or two races where I would really wanted to gun them down and, and, and I did that, right? And then like two years later, I was like, you, you don't look like you did two years ago, <laughs> you know? I mean, they were, we went to the 88 Asian Championships and that was when, um, uh, her name escapes me, but you know, the first Chinese woman broke the 50 free world record. And, you know, the guys were like, but that's faster than I'm swimming, right? She's so fast. And, you know, we all know the, the history there. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that was, I was just really, just really into racing and just being, so I just took it one day at a time. I wasn't like notching things off or, um, you know, saying I need to hit this goal or anything. I wasn't really brought up that way. And my, I was still at my, my club team, just training three or four times a week. I didn't start moving over to a national team until I was probably 13 and I was really eased into it. I only had to go to two sessions. So I was only swimming five times a week by then. I was doing so many other things, right? I was doing school sports. I was, um, playing the violin very badly. I was just doing other things. I had a lot more, more time. I felt like I had a lot of time to do everything. I still, you know, and I was a, I, I was tired at the end of the day and I went to bed and I kind of look at the kids these days. I'm like, you don't have enough time to do all these things that everyone wants you to do. It's, I don't know. I, 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 I don't remember being time poor when I was young. I know we spoke about that, didn't we, a few weeks ago, and we'll come on to, I guess, the experiences you've had in this country. I guess the thing I'd be really curious about, you know, having such a young Olympic experience yourself, was that something that potentially really influenced what came next? Because, you know, the very few people at the age you were have had that many different experiences. So you were perhaps wise beyond your years, do you think? Um. <laughs> Yes, I think so, but I don't think I ever, you know, I, I, I know, I think I was a slightly unusual kid. Like I liked hanging out with the older kids. Um, you know, when I went to my secondary school and I was in, you know, year seven or form one as it was back then, you know, I had no qualms going up and talking to, you know, the, the year 13s, <laughs> which is a little unusual, right? I mean, one of the guys still very, very close friend of our, of, of mine. Um, but yeah, I, I think they were like, God, she's a really precocious little thing. They used to call me the pocket rocket. Cause I just was, I just didn't have any fear. And then I don't know, some, some, someday it, it all landed on me like a, like a piano on my back, but yeah, the Olympics, I just, I remember it as more, um, I was just, I wasn't prepared for it. I absolutely wasn't prepared for it. I had, and I mean that not that I wasn't trained or that I wasn't ready to, to attack it, but just the kind of complexity of it and the whole size and scale of it, right? It was like, I felt like 
um, I was in a fishbowl and I, and I, I just wanted to watch everything. It was like me being 10 years old again, watching it on TV, but, but I was in the TV now, <laughs> you know, and I still was like, wow, that's so-and-so. And that's so-and-so. I remember getting in a, in a lift and Janet Evans walked in the lift with me and I was like, oh my God, you know, and actually she became a, one of my, like my best friend at university. So she loves the story, but, but I remember just being like, just, you know, kind of, I was starstruck in this lift with her, you know, and she was just like uh, completely minding her own business. Um, you know, so I think it was more the experiences. I, I definitely did not swim well. I, I was just sort of not in the headspace to do that. But I remember like being in the, in the canteen and seeing Victor Davis, you know, standing on the table, rallying all the Canadians up and doing, you know, their, their little um, initiation for their rookies and thinking, God, that's a, that's a really fun team. Like I'm like, even now team is huge for me. Like I love getting people to sort of rally around a purpose and a goal. And I remember seeing that and thinking, I know who that is and he's amazing and look what he's doing. And they're all being really silly. You know, it was really fun. Um, I remember coming around a corner and I, and Stefan Edberg, the tennis player was on a bike and he crashed into me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just all these random things in the village. I mean, the village was just like amazing, you know, they should sell tickets for it. Cause it's, that's the show. <laughs> that really is where the show is. And the canteen is just the cafeteria is it's really a true United Nations. Just everyone is in there. Everyone's do it, you know, has worked hard. Everyone from anywhere is just sitting together, having a meal. You know, and that my Asian tendencies are all about, you know, we come together as a family to have, have a meal. So I really remember those things. I, I don't remember my swimming. Um, I remember seeing people swim because I love watching swimming, you know, and that's still a big part of me. I'm a crazy swim fan, you know, like really crazy swim fan. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I sort of had this, I think it was more of like looking back on it, a slight outer body experience. I, I wasn't, I wasn't there. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of, I guess where it comes next, because you've already alluded to like your American college experience. And I think having spoken to a number of American college athletes, not just swimmers, if it's quite different if you grew up in that and if you kind of came into it, uh, in the sense of the fact that, like, I was chatting to a guy called Kyle back in uh, February, March time, and we were talking about how he was born in America, went through the entire system. And actually, he said it was amazing to watch the transformation of people coming in who perhaps were either starstruck or didn't quite understand the, the different team aspects of American sport. And by the time they'd been there three or four years, that was them done for life. They were engaged in that group, and that was like that team of friends and stuff like that. So what was, like, your experience of that going over, as you said, a little bit wide-eyed off the back of uh, an Olympic experience. Yeah, I, you know, I think I started going to the U.S. to train when I was 10 or 11. 
Um, I would go in the summers. My godfather lived in Hawaii, so not a place, not a bad place to go. Um, so I would go there in the summers and stay with them and, you know, totally sort myself out. I felt like my youth was, I was totally sorting myself out. Like no one was driving me anywhere to do anything. And I was just, you know, I, I would get on the bus in this totally different country and get myself to the university of Hawaii and swim every day. And then get back on the bus and, and go home. Um, and so I kind of got this American exposure, um, you know, early on. And, you know, it's a real sort of rah-rah, go get them, woohoo, you know, this is all great and lovely. But they do the team thing really, really well. I mean, they do it so well. And they do it in a way that is, um, if you're on the right team in the right environment, well, I guess you could, it could be anywhere, but they kind of, I, I feel like they, it's, it's part of their makeup. It's so like, again, rallying around something bigger than yourself. And I had a lot of exposure to that. And so I had that when I was in Hawaii, uh, in a soft sense. And then I started going to Florida and doing like summers there training at Pinecrest. Um, with Dave Gibson, who's the head coach at Fort Lauderdale swim team. And he, you know, I just had such a great relationship with him and I would always extend my summers there. And, you know, they, you know, we just had, again, lots of exposure to different meets that had this real carnival nature about them and um, really sort of embracing effort, right? If, if we're gonna get out there and try, then let's be there for each other. And so that was something that I, I, I think it was something I, I had always yearned for. And so when I was in it, it just totally lit me up. So I kind of became this, you know, very natural person to kind of whoop and holler with everyone else and run the gauntlet. I mean, like even here on this, you know, when I was doing swim meets here, that, that I think I took everyone a little bit by surprise because I was the coach that ran up and down the pool deck and was hooting and hollering <laughs> the whole time. Um, but yeah, it, I just found it really, you know, it was, a, it was a, a belonging thing. It was an ability to really belong to something. And, you know, it's a human need. You want to feel like you belong. And so they're, they're good at that. They're really, really good at that, but they have the environments that encourage it as well. You know, the whole collegiate system is, regardless of sport is, is built up around that. And, you know, I was at USC. I mean, you can't really get any more sporty as a university than, than USC. Um, and, you know, so if, if you weren't, if you weren't hooting and hollering for the swim team, you were doing it for the water polo guys. Right. And we would like jump out of practice and then they'd have a, they'd have a, a match going on and we'd sit right there and, you know, do our thing for them. And then there would be the football games on the weekend. And, you know, we'd have our big recruiting trips and bring them to the big games and stuff. Um, so there was always, there was this sort of collective, we're here together doing this thing together, you know, and probably a lot of us didn't think of it then at, in that way, I think, again, it was probably more in our subconscious, but, you know, you had this ready-made family that was there for you. And, you know, when you're kind of coming from wherever you're coming from, I don't think it's necessarily if you're coming from 
America or you're coming from a small little, you know, village in Devon. Um, it's, it's just that, that belonging. It's, it's that here is this family, let's embrace you and let's go out and do that together. You know, so they're, they're really good at that. So I guess that would, it sounds like it's had that had along with your earlier experiences, a massive impact on when you went into coaching, the way in which you coached and your philosophy, I guess, as a person in all the different activities you were involved in. And I just wonder kind of some of that, not obviously talking through every single aspect of your career, but moving along the line, can you think of some examples in your coaching career where your team ethos that you've kind of has become part of you kind of really came to the fore? Yeah, I think when I started, I think my team ethos is, it, it is a huge part of my value system, even with my family, right? I'm like, we're a team, we've got to do it together. My kids roll their eyes at me constantly. Um, you know, they're like, oh, whatever, mom, right? But I just find that, you know, you're, you're better in numbers and you always need someone with their hand on your shoulder, either you know, and if you can do it together, preferably in a circle, because, you know, there's some symbolism there, um, that'll be great. But, you know, with the swim team, I think when I started working with the Stingrays um, in, in Hong Kong, it was really about addressing them as a unit and saying, okay, like, how can we, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. I was a super young coach. And, you know, I had just come off the bat of like four years of Bill Sweet and I'm like, you know, breathing down me. Um, so I, I naturally took on, a, you know, I would catch myself going, God, I sound like Bill. <laughs> you know, I need to, need to soften that a little bit. But, um, you know, really just trying to get them to, to feel like, you know, we're in this together. We're all doing our thing. I want you to do this and you do this and you do this, but we need to do this together. And so the thing that's I really enjoyed was when we had, um, you know, I had them towards the end of a season, we would just go and, you know, we, we, uh, we rented out like, like a bowling alley and we, we did that. So it was having fun together, but not in a swimming pool. And then we did a skit like a stupid skit, which is something I got from Pinecrest, which was super fun during the camp days. And again, they were, you know, we were like taking the Mickey out of this coach and a lot of me um, and, you know, parents and things like that. And, you know, that was really fun. And they just got super creative about it. And it was a real, uh, there was a lot of collective joy in that. Um, I ran a Pilates business for a long time. I, I, I don't think I mentioned that, but even like with my staff who I had to, I trained a lot. It was like, you know, how can we, how can we do this together? How can we do this better? What do we, what do we think about these clients and what do you think they need? And, you know, I remember someone coming in with, you know, those MBT shoes, those really ridiculous shoes that people wore for a while. They came in and they wanted to see if we could come up with some program. And so we were like, all right, well, we got a free hour. So we just opened up the mat room and we were just mucking around playing. And again, it was not like, um, it was a, again, a collective effort. And I think it was very much important. It, you know, really important to me to, to have the collaborative experience. 
um, to make sure everyone had a voice and to really just try and like, if we're gonna move the needle, we need to do it together. And we need to rethink a lot of things over and over again. And that has developed and evolved over many, many, many years. You know, the rethinking when I was 22 was not so big, right? <laughs> but the rethinking that I do now is, takes me a while. Like I want to uncover a lot of things. So yeah. I guess as well, <clears throat> the, the curious thing about all of this, you know, we, we, we spoke a few weeks back about the whole, the whole mental health aspect in terms of a, a coaching journey and the challenges around that. And one of the, the fascinating parts of, I guess, or the gap, if you like, in this country is we're, tr- we're aspiring to create better teams and work more collaboratively. But ultimately, we need to look after number one as well. And I mm-hmm. think obviously some of the experiences you had, you know, when you came out of full-time coaching actually kind of showed us still that big gap between the, I think the intentions there, but the actual action around looking after yourself, making sure your mental well-being is in the right place is something that is still vastly underrepresented, I guess, in, in general sport, not just in our sport. Yeah. I mean, sport is just, it's one of those things that's totally passion driven, Right. So whether you're an athlete or you're a coach, I mean, it's, it's passion driven, it's purpose driven, it's, it's totally emotional, right? So if you take um, the concept of the elephant and the rider, the rider being, you know, your sort of logical brain and the elephant being your emotions, I mean, the elephant is doing a lot of the work in, in, in our niche, right? So I think with me, I, I, you know, I have a very entrepreneurial spirit, as do you. And, you know, I really like working things out and getting things done. Like I don't have the, I don't have a lot of patience to not get things done. Something I'm working on, but generally I'm like, got to get things done. And so um, also just coming from Hong Kong, which is uber efficient, right? It's, it's a, there, you don't get a more efficient city than, than Hong Kong. Things get done at like warp speed. If you needed it yesterday, it was done the day before yesterday, right? Sort of thing. So coming here where people don't like change, it was very difficult for me to, to kind of figure out. So at the end of the day, I really just suffered from, you know, purpose-driven burnout. I just did. I just was like, this is not happening fast enough. People don't understand me, you know, and it was just this all, it, it wasn't anything that anyone did to me. It was totally something I did to myself. Um, and I just, you know, I just had a lot of energy depletion. I was really exhausted. Um, and I, that's when I really started to notice the sort of mental distancing from this job, from being a swim coach for something that, you know, I really, I get looking at it now, it really defined me. It was um, my identity. And to sort of now have this separation, it was, I was like, what, what, what do I do? Like, what do I do? I'm not, I'm definitely not a swimmer anymore. So I can't hold on to that. Although I got so many reminders. So like all my friends are like, this is my friend AM. She's an Olympian. I was like, oh my God, that was like 30 years ago. Can you stop with that? You know? And then, well, she's a coach. And, and I was like, oh, just, just having that sort of 
very sharp change to, to really wanting to do this to then, I don't want to do this anymore. Like something has happened. Um, was really difficult. I think I was also suffering a type of grief too, because I had just left Hong Kong. My team there was thriving, right? And I was just dealing with the admin on the side. So none of the fun stuff, right? And certainly none of the glory. But So there was that. And also leaving my charity that I was deeply, deeply involved in. And that's, you know, hugely fulfilling work but it's hands-on work. So I couldn't really do it from here. So I think there was a little bit of that that led to my sort of complete, just, I need to walk away for me. So that was the me taking care of myself. But then I said no to this career at the same time. And so it's been working that out <laughs> since then, um, you know, and yeah. I think there's a lot of people who can empathize with that in some way, because I can only speak for myself, but I certainly remember some point during the summer last year, you know, once we'd all got our heads around the concept of our lockdown and everything stopping and no swimming pools being open or no sports facilities open, there was that identity crisis and you knew what your passion was and you knew what your beliefs were and what you loved, but almost the, there was a separation from that and actually you started questioning well who am I because suddenly I can't go to the gym or the pool or anything like that and, and there was a, a crisis of identity and it was interesting speaking to people outside of sport who still couldn't access their workplace or whatever it was they were involved in and they were all saying something similar so I guess having never been to an Olympics having never been through the American college system and but having burnt out as a coach I can certainly empathize with that kind of identity crisis if you like to a point where actually you then start to go well what next and I guess that's what I want to kind of get into next because you've been on a bit of a journey since coming away from that. We spoke a few weeks ago about the, you know, the gap in men's and women's coaching on some of the experiences you've had since, you know, and actually it, it wasn't almost the end of the journey. It was actually just, you know, a slight change of direction. And actually there's been some amazing stuff since then. So if you can just talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, I made a, I made a clear break from, from coaching here and, you know, I, I, a commitment to myself to try and really figure out like, okay, what's going on here? Like, what do I really want? You know, the big existential question, who am I and why am I here? Right. Which is, it just will never get answered. Right? It'll just never get answered. But I think then I was like, okay, what, what do I know is certain? I know that, um, that I have good technical tactical skills but I no longer have a pool deck from which to unleash them. But I do have all of the other stuff that comes with coaching, you know, just working with the resiliency, the mental resiliency, working a little bit with, you know, understanding boundaries. And, it, you know, the irony being that I clearly didn't do them for myself, which is why I had burnout. But, um, you know, understanding yourself a little bit better and your emo you know your emotional intelligence and all of that stuff that everyone goes through and feels at some point so i thought okay this is not sports specific this is this is human so but i felt more comfortable in the sports space so i wasn't about to go off to some big corporate and say hey i've just come off this you know little community swim team but but let me change your life <laughs> you know <laughs> 
So I thought, all right, I'm going to reach out to some other coaches and other sports and learn from them. And I started doing a lot of CPDs um, and, you know, I, like I came to yours, which is swimming, but you had non-swimming people there. So I thought that was, um, that's really what piqued my interest. I was like, Ooh, this is good. Cause there, and you know, Richard Cheatham was there and I, uh, I had already known about him and his work and um, Stu Armstrong was there and I'd known about his work. I, you know, these were people that I was really listening to already. So I was super interested in that. And then what I found was a lot of these um, workshops or conferences or whatnot that I went to, it was like 99% male, um, you know, just lots, lots of men. And, you know, I'd, I'd kind of, I'd say, you know, I, I've, I've been on, I don't know, maybe 10 of these things and they just weren't a lot of females. Now, if there were females, um, like for example, uh, you know, your conference, they tended to be more on the, the grassroots end, you know, the taking care of the little ones, not sort of the ones in, you know, the performance end or the elite end, et cetera, et cetera. So that was something that I found kind of interesting. Um, and, but it made sense to me because part of my wanting to walk away from it was just like, you know, if I want to do this well, I will never see my family ever. Um, and it would, you know, it was a little bit different from Hong Kong. We just had a lot more time there, I felt. So we'll get back to the time poor issue here. But I was like, if I want to do this well here, I'm just never going to see my family. And, you know, they've just moved too. And my kids really kind of need me in a different way right now because they're adjusting. It was difficult for them. My son was going through some mental health issues himself, which he's, you know, we've worked through and he's all good now. But, you know, it was all just this big international move, total change in culture and environment, which is weird because, you know, the, the kids are English, you know, they grew up in Hong Kong. My husband's English. Um, and we come here, but we had this kind of like reverse culture shock. It was weird. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, I, it was just something that I had observed. There just weren't a lot of women around, but there are some great female coaches out there, but it's like, well, how, how do they get there? And are they like me? And, you know, in, in that, do they, do they have busy family lives, you know, and, and maybe they don't. Right. So then are they more like me or are they more like all the other male coaches who don't necessarily have busy family lives or where it's sort of culturally and societally acceptable for the women to shoulder the burden, the nurturing burden, right. Of raising kids and whatnot. And I think I've, you know, I started listening into a couple of these workshops and stuff and were women who were perfectly acceptable to start working in more higher rank jobs, more, more, more of the, not higher rank, but more of the performance and bigger com time commitment jobs. And again, it was just that weighing up of not to the detriment of my family. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't balance it well, I can't do this well without the detriment of my family, or I can't be with my family because 
then I, I just can't do that job. And so that's something it, that I have observed here, probably more so than, than certainly back in Asia where we have a lot of help and there's a lot more time. Um, and the US, they have a lot more time um, and probably less travel time restrictions, et cetera, as well. So I don't know, it was, it, it was interesting to me, but it was, uh, it was a non-negotiable thing on my side. I was like, I can't, I can't do this well. Cause you, you don't want to half-ass your job either. Right. No. So that was, that was part of it. Do you think though, and this is a, a really curious shift around the, the rebalancing and usually we talk about it from an athlete point of view you've got to have balance right you've got to rest and recover properly otherwise you can't perform in the pool or the gym or the on the track or whatever sport it is and actually it feels like we're painfully slowly heading in a direction where actually it's possible to be a good coach and have some level of balance obviously there's compromise on both sides but I think you know I remember listening to talk maybe five or six years ago from, from a coach up north and he was saying do you need to be there on a Monday morning for a recovery session or can your assistant coach do that? And is that just because you're always there on a Monday morning? And actually, you know, one of the things I'm pushing for and I, I, saying I feel hugely passionate around is this, this time element. So actually, yes, in the nature of most sports, there might be some weekend work, but if there's a full weekend taken up, you get that time back during the week so that you get that balance. Whereas, perhaps more some of the outdated practices that exist in some sports go, you can't do that. You're contracted Monday to Friday, nine to five every evening. But also if there's a weekend, we're going to put you on top of that and there's no additional finances for it, but you still don't get that time back. And for me, that's like, if you were working in certain professions in the modern day professional world, that would be unacceptable. You know, time in lieu and all those sorts of things. Yeah, you would work evenings or weekends, but you'd get the time back at another time. And I'm kind of like, well, the model exists outside of sport in some professions, but, and we're talking about it with athletes now about good balance and managing yourself and those sort of things, but still, there still seems to be this almost structural thing in place throughout the coaching world that she's like, if you want to be the best coach, forget everything else. And I'm kind of like, I, I don't think that's the only way it might be because of where we are now in certain constraints, but actually in five, 10 years time, is it unreasonable to expect that a head coach and assistant coach job share the performance aspects of the job so the head coach can have a family life or whatever it is? And I think there's, there's that, that might be a discussion I hope we're moving towards. I mean, yeah, I think it's a, it's a it must, must have conversation um, at every level, right? Because we, as coaches, just kind of follow the trodden path because what else is there, right? I mean, my coaches were always there. My coaches were all male and they were always there. Um, and even if I, you know, had an assistant role here and there, I had to be there with them. You know? So it was like, there is no break here. Um, but I, yeah, I think the, the balance thing is, is so key because you know, look, the mental game is not gender specific, right? It's not age or gender specific. So if you don't have any balance there, then you're going to suffer in some way, shape or form. And so I think the diagnostic for how, uh, you know, we raise healthy athletes and we raise coaches, um, 
and put coaches forwards again, because, you know, what is the main thing there around sports? People get into sport because it's fun and people coach because they're so passionate about it. Right. But we're the first group of people, same with like the medical profession who, who suffer as a result of that, because we just want the best for who we're working with all the time. And, you know, we're always tinkering. I mean, I don't know any coach who doesn't tinker. And if, if they don't, they're not good. Right. And you can see that a mile away. I mean, remember Dave Hemmings's, yeah. uh, you know, presentation, your thing. And he's so like all the stuff he was doing, which, you know, you could see half the coaches in the room going, Oh my God, it's so detailed, you know, <laughs> but I mean, he would do that anyway because he loves it. Right. You could see that he was. And so I think great coaches just love it and they're into it. But if they're so sucked into now, we're we're kind of talking swimming here. Right. Because swimming is so, so time dependent. It's heavy, heavy stuff. Right. Like you take the team sports and I think Wayne Goldsmith talks about this a lot. Right. He's like, if you get. A, a parent who's like, hmm, shall we choose swimming or shall we choose footy, right? Swimming, I got to get my kid there eight times a week. And then I got to give my weekends up. Footy, I got to get them there two times a week for a one hour practice and then a match on a Saturday. Hmm. <laughs> you know, which I, one am I going to choose? I find that really interesting because, and we talk obviously we're talking in swimming language here but and i'll send it across to you there was a book i came across by a guy called adam k who worked in the medical profession and he talked about junior doctors and their working contracts and he he gave the example and i can't remember exactly what it was it said if you worked a 12-hour shift seven till seven and it meant you went home early because at seven you finished and you went home but there was still three hours of patients to treat and if you went home some of those may die he said, that's not a choice. He said, as a human being who loves what they do, you're going to stay till 10 o'clock and make sure that those patients get treated. That's not sustainable. And he, his story brings it to life from a completely different sector, not necessarily to the same severity, but certainly at the um, self, dep- uh, it, it damages yourself to put yourself in that situation. But ultimately, if you believe in what you do and you're doing it for the right reasons, you're never going to say no or certainly for the majority of the time, you're never going to say no to doing the extra hours, the evenings, the weekends and stuff. But obviously there comes a point where there's a tipping edge between stepping away from it. And ironically, he wrote his, he kept a diary the whole way through it. And then when he retired from it or stepped away from burnout, he published his diaries and talked about the insights on it. And you're like, that's exactly like coaching. How many times Mm -hmm. do you need the team to be picked by Friday night, but five o'clock comes around and you can either go, oh, we'll sort it out in the morning. None of the competitions tomorrow. So you need to sort it out now, or there's a problem with the facility or whatever it is. And actually there's aspects to it where you go above and beyond and quite rightly so, but actually there's no balance and there's nobody above in whatever sport it is kind of going, it's okay. We'll sort that out. People just go, well, that's sports suck it up. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. It's not because if I was working in whatever other sector it was, there would be throwback. And you'd be in breach of contracts and all those sorts of things. But we're in such, I guess, an amateur world. Well, that's what it feels like that actually these unprofessional and almost like archaic practices are just taken as part of the job. And then people go, I can't understand why we can't get any coaches through. And I'm like, exactly what you just said there. Well, look at your shop window. 
if the shop window is you've seen your coach burn out and the coach before them burn out and their relationships fall apart or whatever it is, what, what kind of advertising board is that for people to go, yeah, I want to get into coaching. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true. You know, if you look at what, you know, again, why do we get into this? We get into it. We get kids into it because it's fun. And obviously, you know, all the physical benefits, we don't need to harp on, you know, we know the reasons there and coaches get into it because they enjoy it. Right. And in the olden days, it was totally manageable. And then sports marketing came along and has totally professionalized sport. And, you know, what, what so many kids aspire to now, so many athletes aspire to now is I want to be a professional athlete. Right. And so there's all these systems in place to help athletes get there. Um, I'm not too aware of the same sort of systems supporting the coaches who just take on all of the stress of trying to get the athlete there. And, you know, so little of the glory because they could get an athlete there, but then they've got all these other athletes that they have to take care of. So it's this self-perpetuating cycle of craziness and unbalance, right? And, and no one really helping them along the way. Um, now, maybe if you're in the NBA, it's different, right? But they don't train as hard as the swimmers do, like, you know, time-wise, again, if we go kind of go back to that, um, you know, and, and I think that sort of stuff is hard. Uh, you know, in the U.S., they've got the college programs. So you're sort of, it's this nice feeder system, right? And I think there's a lot more balance there because it's part of the, the day, right? It's part of the, the day there. But I mean, like here, I was like, oh, practice starts at 8 p.m. Really? <laughs> you know, like I've got nine-year-olds in the water at 8 p.m. That's just why, why are we doing that? You know, partly there's not enough pools going around, but partly because they don't finish school and can get to you until like all their commitments, they can't get to you until, you know, five at the earliest, depending on their age and if, if they can get to you. So, you know, I think it is, it is something that needs to be looked at systematically, right? And can we produce I mean, if you look at the ISL that just happened, right? When they were all in their little bubble and they just produced these amazing swims over and over and over and over again, race after race after race. I mean, surely the exposure, there's gotta be something there about just the exposure to racing, which is the fun element, right? Then just plowing up and down a pool endlessly for two hours, twice a day, most days a week. Um, you know, and then having a meet every now and then. So the, the American model is a bit like that. Every Saturday we race, every Friday, Saturday, we have a dual meet, you know, and it's a short season. I think that's the other thing too. They have in the U.S., they have summer league. And I worked on a summer league. Uh, yeah, like, you know, two, two three years ago, um, I, I had to leave here. So I went over to California and did like a whole summer there. And it's just, it's just, it's so like carnival nature, right? Everyone is having fun. They had a bar for the parents. I'm like, that is a big win, right? You've got to have mom drinks (laughs) at these things. And everyone is having fun and getting into it. And it's such, it was like a two hour commitment. And then I would come here and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be at this indoor pool, dying of the chlorine, 
all weekend just to see half the team, like, you know, cause these are the little guys get disqualified, you know, and it's just this militaristic operation. There's this volunteer army, which is great, but they're not happy doing what they're doing. It's like out of obligation, right? Just to see their little kid get disqualified in a 50 backstroke. You know, I think there's so many things that can change there. It's not a learning opportunity. It's just, it does nothing for self-confidence. And, you know, parents are just like, I just can't be bothered with this anymore. But the kid's like, no, I want to stay there because they love their team. They love their friends. They want to be there for the fun element. They don't want to be disqualified. But, you know, they're not listening if they're in the middle of a 3K set. Because who listens in the middle of a 3K set? (laughs) So I think there's a lot of things that can change. And I do wonder if there's a way that we can really shorten the commitment so that we can really get back to what's important. And it's, it's the fun, the love of the sport, getting coaches to be continually inspired and encouraged to stay on it but not give their life up for it, you know, from a a time perspective. Yeah, and I think at a young age, that's so important. And I think the kind of thing I wanted to pull this all together with, well, actually, I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one is sitting where you are now and reflecting back on everything so far, what's kind of the, the main lesson that stuck out for you moving forwards, continuing to move forwards in the sports world? What's kind of your one takeaway so far? Nothing's for certain. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. <laughs> Nothing is for certain. Um, I, look, I really think you need to know yourself. And if you can take the time to, you know, do the big self-reflection piece to really um, to figure out like, you know, that, that big question, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Am I doing this? Like for me, I'm doing this because uh seem like the thing to do when I was, you know, I just retired. I was a little bit angry with my career. So, you know, I'm going to whip someone else into shape and get them, get them to swim, you know, fast. Um, And then, you know, that just kind of, you know, 23 years later, (laughs) here we are. Right. But I think it's, it's that just know yourself it. And sometimes like for me, if it, if it takes burnout to get to know yourself, then, then do it right? Take, that's a, that's a sign to get some clarity, to try and figure out, okay, what's really important to me? What do I want to spend my time doing? How do I want to make an impact? Who am I going to inspire? Who can I influence? Who can I, uh, you know, and that might just be, you know, my family, it doesn't need to be some big crazy thing, right? I mean, I think, what a, what a lot of us forget, what a lot of the parents that I worked with in terms of the team forget is that the greatest form of leadership really is parenting. So explore that a little bit. Like if you're going to yell at me because I didn't offer X, Y, Z to your child, or I didn't tap them on the back or say a positive word, like, are you doing that? <laughs> you know? So it's, it's something that's kind of woken me up a little bit to, to how I parent, really. Uh, it's certainly improved relationships, but probably because I'm around a lot more now and we've had a whole year to, to beat each other's hair. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, like 
if there was a rule to live by, I, I think, um, I, I love this quote. I do love this quote. If you keep a foot in the past and a foot in the future, you're constantly pissing on the present, right? And I think <laughs> you really just need to just be in the moment, enjoy what you're doing now. Don't take yourself too seriously. Laugh often and much, preferably within the company of others. But, you know, if you want to laugh when you're on a walk, listening to some comedy improv, then, then go for it because you will make someone else laugh when they see you laughing, right? And then, yeah, like as my hometown hero, Bruce Lee said, be like water, just, just let it happen. Well, that's been awesome. There was one thing I all try and ask every single one of my guests, if I remember, is if you could go back, especially having been on such an exploratory journey so young, if you could go back to when you joined that club seven, eight years old and you first moved into the swim team, what would you say to yourself? Hmm. What would I say to myself? What would I say to myself? You know, I might actually flip that, Kevin, because I think, I think my young self has taught my older self a little bit more in this instance, because I really lived in the moment back then. I took every day as it came. I didn't worry about, I didn't worry about going to the Olympics. I just went, <laughs> I didn't do very well, uh, but, but I, um, I did. I, you know, whatever was presented to me in the moment, I, I grabbed it and I did the best that I could with it. And so that's something that I'm trying to be better at now as an adult. So I would flip that. Fantastic. Well, no one's ever answered it like that before. So it's been a, it's been a real pleasure sharing some time with you. Thank you so much for your time. And we will make sure we include your, your Twitter link and everything else so people can get in touch with you. Cause I'm sure there'll be some young coaches out there and people that have been through similar experiences that I'm sure would love to share those. So Thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. A huge thank you again there to Anne-Marie for sharing some time with us and for sharing those honest insights into the experiences that she's had along her journey. You can connect with her on both Twitter and Instagram and we've included her website link which has all her professional links in the show notes. So where do we go from there? Next week, we are speaking to a champion for all things coaching and keeping things in perspective as we speak to four-time Olympic coach, Dave Champion. We've got some exciting news coming to our September community update, so please make sure you're subscribed to that. Again, the link for which is in the show notes. Have a great week and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Road Monkey Podcast.